if you were here last week, I was sharing, I came up with this series last February. I don't remember if we're flying back from DFW or Houston, but uh, it was late night flat, flying back to Wichita, and the pilot was taxing on the runway, and he just kept taxing, taxing, taxing. Finally, being the ADD guy I am, I looked at Mariah and said, are we driving back to Wichita? And that's what made me think about this series, because I thought about my life and the life of people I love, I guess all of us to some degree. Because I mean, I thought, wouldn't it be a shame for an airplane like 737 to be designed to fly and taxi all the time, never fly? I mean, it could. It's, it's made to where it can taxi, but it'd be a shame if it never flew. And I began to think about my life and the lives of all of us, and I thought, wouldn't it be a shame if we never really lived out the life that we were destined to live? If we just taxied and we were never airborne? And the more I thought about this series, the more I, I thought, well, this is the perfect time to talk about it. It's the beginning of a new year. Many of us have experienced many new beginnings in New Year's, only to find ourselves a few months later the same person we were when we started. And as I said last week, I don't think it's from lack of trying. I think we try really hard. There's just something we're missing that maybe keeps us from experiencing this, this airborne life, this life that we were designed to live. And by the way, I'm not the first one to use the metaphor of flight in regard to this life. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 31, the Bible says, but those who wait on the Lord are those who trust in the Lord, is a better translation. We'll get fresh energy, and they spread their wings and soar like eagles. And as I said last week, and I'll say again, if I think about that expression, they spread their wings and soar like eagles, I'm not sure in full academic honesty I can stand before you and say that expression characterizes my life. I really don't know that I can say that. I have seasons where I feel like I'm living out my destiny and my design. But to be, to, to be honest with you, I guess I'm just too much of an American. I'm just too much of a 21st century earth dweller. Uh, I find myself much more taxing instead of being airborne. But I want, to, I want to live out that life I'm designed to live. I mean, it'd be a shame for me to get to the end of my life and never really live out the design that God has for me. Well, I know many of us, if we heard that expression, they, they sort of like wiggles, eagles, many of us would say, well, yeah, that doesn't characterize my life either. But I've pastored long enough to know that some of us would have reasons for that. They say, well, Mark, I would love to soar like an eagle, but the reason why I can't is this person in my life. It's the guy I'm married to. It's the gal I'm married to. It's my kids. It's my parents. It's my friends. It's my boss. I would like to soar like an eagle, but somebody is holding me down. Or many of us would say something like this. It's just circumstances. I would like to soar like an eagle, but my circumstances have conspired against me to create a scenario where flight's just impossible. But I want you to hear what the Bible has to say about that. Scripture says no weapon that has been made to be used against you will succeed. Now, real quickly, it doesn't say that there will never be a weapon made to be used against you. I know I'm not telling you anything new. There are going to be some people that aren't going to like you. There are going to be a few people that are just, they just like to hurt people, and you will be in their way. So I'm not blowing sunshine at you. I'm not telling you that there, there isn't going to be a weapon formed against you. Neither is God saying that. He's just saying it won't succeed. In other words, there, there is no one, there is no set of circumstances that can hold you back. The Bible says this is the inheritance of the Lord's servants. Their victory comes from God. See, I don't have to depend on a person for my winning. You know, how many of us feel like, wow, this person is keeping me from winning or this situation is keeping me from winning? And yet the Bible says winning comes from God. God is the one who gives us the victory. But you know what? I could be talking to somebody here, and I know that New Spring tends to be a young church, but if you're my age, a little younger, a little older, you could say something like this. You could say, you know what, Mark? I would love to live the airborne life, but it's too late for me. I, passed, I missed my opportunity. 
I smoked too much dope. I met the wrong people. I made the wrong turn. I chose the wrong career. You know, I just, I, I had my season. I had my moment. I didn't seize the moment. And because of that, it's too late for me. Well, I got some good news for you here today because it's a wonderful verse in the Bible for all of us who maybe haven't turned out the way we hope to turn out. In the book of Jeremiah, God tells the prophet Jeremiah, I want you to go down to the house of the guy who makes clay pots and jars. And God said, I'm going to talk to you there. I'm going to coach you up. How many of you discovered that God can talk to you in strange places? God said, Jeremiah, you're my boy. I want you to go down to the house where they make clay pots. I'm going to coach you up down there. Love what Jeremiah says. Look at this. He said, I did as he told me, and I found the potter working at his wheel. But the jar he was forming didn't turn out as he wished. So he kneaded it into a lump and started again. I don't know how far you had to drive to be at New Spring here today, but it's been worth it just to get that one line. You know what? If you and I don't turn out the way God hoped we'd turn out, he doesn't throw us in the junk bin. He just takes the clay, and he kneads it all up, and he starts over again. In fact, I could be talking to somebody here today, and you're in that kneading, K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G, kneading process. And you could say, Mark, I feel like my life is ill-defined. No, no, no. God's just repositioning you. So let no one say here today, I can't live the airborne life because of somebody or circumstances or I've waited too late. It's available to all of us who are willing to listen. Well, if you're holding a Bible in your lap, you're holding the airborne life. But there's, there is a, a concentrated section of the Bible, three chapters long, in which we get perhaps the most perfect definition of how to quit taxing and live airborne. It's in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And you and I need to understand that the chapter numbers were put in there 1,100 years after the Bible was written just to help us navigate. So initially, it was just one talk. It was a talk given by Jesus Christ. And it's been called various things. Some people call it the greatest sermon ever preached. Some people call it the kingdom manifesto. But if you grew up in church, chances are you know it as the Sermon on the Mount. And really what Jesus is doing is he is coaching up a whole generation of people, the people, the hundreds, maybe thousands of people who have gathered to listen to Jesus. They grew up in a rules-based system. They grew up, as I said last week, in a system of checking the boxes and, and you know, keeping the rules. So Jesus is dealing with people that they're focused on rules, and he's telling them, look, I know you've been told this, but I'm going to tell you this. Basically, he is going to show them a whole new life. And so I don't, I don't even know how long this series is going to be. For me, I usually don't preach over a five-week series. This may be seven, eight weeks long. I just don't want to cut Jesus short. He's going to talk to us. But here's the thing, and, and we'll see this as this series progresses. He's going to get into all kinds of specific subjects, subjects that people are interested in. He's going to talk about sex. He's going to talk about money. He's going to talk about power, and he's going to talk about Time management, he's going to talk about personal relationships, anger, and all that. He'll get into all these specific topics. But before he does, he wants to tell you and me about the one thing that's absolutely essential. Even if you were to line up all the other dials, Jesus wants you to understand, if we don't get this one thing, we will never know what it's like to, as Reagan said, slip the surly bonds of earth and touch the face of God. So then, what's he going to talk to us about? It is so interesting because the word that Jesus is going to talk to us about is the same word that pilots are very concerned about. It's the word attitude, 
Not altitude, but attitude. Long before Jesus is going to talk to us about any specific subject, he's going to talk to us eight times about having the right attitude. Because in Jesus' way of thinking, attitude is everything. I don't know anything about flying. This is the air capital of the world. We've got a lot of you in the aircraft industry. A lot of you are pilots. I've been fortunate to have some coaching up for this series. One of my best friends is Joe Beck. He's a retina surgeon, but he's also a, he's a great pilot. He trains pilots. And, and Joe kind of coaches me up on all this. And we were discussing the importance of attitude. The plane's attitude is its orientation to the horizon. See, heavy stuff is not meant to stay in the sky. So consequently, you have a craft that's designed um, to utilize properly the four forces necessary for flight and keep, keep the plane in the sky. And that's called the plane's attitude. If at any point the attitude of the plane is bad, the plane is coming out of the sky. Now, here's the thing. You know, for many of us, we could say, well, there's nothing wrong with my attitude. You know what? Many pilots have said that right before they took a plane down. In fact, there were some Russian pilots who took an Aeroflot, perfectly good 737, took it right into the ground because they were unfamiliar with the particular piece of equipment, the particular gauge, the attitude indicator. Because see, the thing about it is, here's the thing about flying, and it's also similar to life. You have some fluid inside your inner ear, and that fluid is put there by God to help you have equilibrium or help you have balance, to help you orient yourself to gravity. But when you're flying, sometimes a fluid in your inner ear can get all screwed up, and, and a pilot can actually begin to think that he's banking the plane, when in reality, he's flying level. But in, his, in the way he feels, he feels like he's banking. So a pilot sometimes will turn to overcorrect that and, of course, take the plane right into the ground because the attitude is wrong. He feels that his attitude is right. That's why it's all important to have a particular gauge called an attitude indicator. It tells the pilot, that her plane or his plane is oriented correctly to the horizon and can stay in the sky. Last week, we were having coffee. Joe, when Joe and I were having coffee before the Saturday services, he told me something I found interesting. He said, it, it's, he said typically a pilot will have at least six gauges that he'll depend on. The six-pack is what pilots will call it. And the most important gauge is the attitude indicator. But he said it's the one gauge that oftentimes pilots will want a redundancy in. Because he said if your attitude indicator goes out, he said you won't be able to depend on that all-important piece of equipment. And so oftentimes a smart pilot or smart aircraft manufacturer will put in a second attitude indicator. And he just said the best ones are made right here in Wichita. I said, any chance we can get one? And thanks to Mid-Continent Instruments and Avionics, I have one with me today. Now, I found out how much this costs. I am holding it very carefully with two hands, okay? This is called a standby attitude module so that if the primary attitude indicator goes out, a pilot has this to depend on. Now, I love this gauge because it's got color. See, here's the thing. Down here is brown and up here is blue. The brown is for the ground. The blue is for the sky. It's very important for pilot to keep that straight. But I, you can see I can turn this, and you can see the pitch and the roll of the aircraft. And it's, it's whether or not the airplane can stay in the sky or whether or not the attitude is correct. Now, I'm very carefully going to put this back on my table in the middle, in the safest place. If you see me start to go close to the table to bump it, you stop me, okay? Now, here's the thing. 
God is going to coach you and me up about the importance of our attitude. Last weekend, I shared with you the first four attitudes that Jesus said were important. Number one, to not be full of ourselves. Number two, to be willing to be vulnerable, to, put our, to be willing to put our hearts at risk in order to love. We talked about the third attitude that Jesus talked about, and that is treating everybody kindly. And the fourth thing is wanting what God wants more than anything else. Guys, as I was getting ready for this talk, I began to notice that God had helped me group these perfectly because the first four attitudes Jesus is going to talk about is very different from the second four. See, the first four attitudes he's going to talk about, that's for clear air flying. That's for when you're in smooth air. When you can look out your cockpit and there's no clouds in the sky, you can see where you're going. You've got your instruments, but you can see. I mean, this, this is, the first four are just personality profile. You know, I'm not full of myself. Um, I'm willing to love. I'm kind, treat everybody kindly, and I, and I want what God wants. I mean, I can have a perfectly good day, and that can be my attitudes. But now Jesus is going to take a decided turn because with these second four attitudes, he's going to talk to us about the attitude that we're going to need when we're flying in nasty air. You're going to notice that every one of these four attitudes are the attitudes you're going to need when you're not flying the friendly skies. Before I get started, most scared I've ever been in an airplane was uh, in 1996. Uh, I was on a mission trip to the Caribbean, and I promise you it was a missions trip because it was in late July. <laughs> no, nobody, and, and I was going from island to island to island preaching, and <laughs> we were flying a missionary aircraft. It was a 1967 Piper twin engine. Evidently, there is a lot of difference between missionary aircraft and televangelist aircraft. I've never been on a televangelist airplane, but from what I've read in the papers, there's got to be a lot of difference because this plane, I still remember getting, it was a six-seat configuration, and I was sitting in the back, and I, would look, I looked up at the, at the instrument panel, and it was like all jerry-rigged and wires hanging out and aftermarket stuff. I thought, I'm scared to even sit on this plane on the ground. And, and the thing about it is, flying, you know, flying like we were flying from island to island to island, in that time of the year, these big thunderheads boil up, these huge clouds. And so time after time, the pilot would take off, and he would start climbing. He would climb and climb and climb. You hear the engine strain. He's trying to get over the top of the clouds, and we get on top of them, then we could fly. i never forget the afternoon we were leaving St. Thomas, and we were flying to Mayaguez, Puerto Rico, because there was this huge cloud. You could just see them boiled up. And so the pilot started trying to climb. I, you know what? I always hate to hear a pilot tell me I'm going to try. <laughs> That's just not what I want to hear. I'm going to try. He said, I'm going to try to get on top of those. And then he said, we'll try to see if we can punch a hole in land. So I, I'm already a little nervous. Anyway, I could hear, he was climbing, climbing, climbing. And it was very clear to me he wasn't going to get on top of them. And we flew right into the, that thunderstorm. And guys, I'm going to tell you the truth. That storm throw, started throwing that airplane around like a rag doll. I mean, it, there were times that it felt like it would throw it down hundreds of feet. And I still remember being in the back seat looking up at the pilot through the horror that I was experiencing. And I watched that pilot as he just held on to the wheel. I, I don't think he was concerned at all about how high he was, how fast he was going, maybe not even which direction he was going. He was just keeping the plane in the air. 
When my friend Joe and I were having coffee yesterday morning, he, he added something to me to help me understand that for the first time. He said when you're in a storm, he said the important thing is just keep the attitude right, keep, to keep the wings level. He, he said, here's the thing, because I was wondering, well, when, the, when we were thrown down, why didn't the pilot try to climb back up? And he said something to me, and I think if you'll apply this metaphor to life, you'll get, you'll get some understanding out of this. He said, the last thing in the world the pilot wants to do is to fight the altitude change, because he said if he did, he might rip the wings off the plane. He said, the thing to do is just to accept the change, keep the wings level. See, some of us, when we go through difficult times, hard circumstances in life, we try to fight the altitude change. We rip the wings off of marriage. We rip the wings off relationships. When all the time, the thing to do, and Jesus is going to tell us this over and over and over with the four we're about to look at, just keep your wings level. When you're going through nasty air, keep your wings level. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Here's, here's the first of four. This is in Matthew chapter 5, in the seventh verse. Jesus said, happy. He's going to talk about happy people. It's all about attitude. Happy are the merciful or those who give mercy, for they will be given mercy. What is mercy? Okay, mercy means you're flying in bad air. You don't need to give somebody mercy if they haven't hurt you, cost you, or denied you something that is yours. So consequently, we're talking about flying in nasty air. This is when you've been hurt. Now, real, real quickly, I want to make sure you always know, I'm never suggesting that you need to let an abuser abuse you. That's facilitation. That's not mercy. Well, let's talk about what mercy is. I always want you to know the distinction between grace and mercy. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. So now God is inviting us. When we go through the turbulent air of hurt, Jesus is saying, hey, remember to keep your wings level and be merciful because that way you will receive mercy. It's not a perfect illustration, but it's the one that's on my mind. Um, you know, many times as New Spring has grown, we had over 7,000 people here last weekend. There are times I'm kind of sad for all of you who are new to New Spring that there were certain people you didn't get to know. Um, one of the closest friends I ever had in my life, he's with the Lord now, he'd passed a few years ago, was Paul Clark. And Paul was, at his death, he was the longest serving judge in Sedgwick County. And what a man. He, everybody respected Paul. I mean, he just lived his Christian faith. Such a, the most gentle-spirited man I ever met in my life. I still remember he was dying of a rare blood disease, and for a while dialysis could kind of keep him, you know, level. But I still remember the day I got the phone call. Paul was still at the hospital. The doctor had just told him that dialysis was no longer going to work. Basically, he was told he had a month, maybe two months to live. And I raced to St. Francis Hospital because I knew my good friend up there had just gotten that word. Honestly, I walked in the door, and he and Alice was there. Paul was still there on dialysis. And he looked at me, and he said, Alice, I'm worried about Pastor. I don't think he's getting enough rest. <laughs> that was Paul Clark. But because he had such an august president, I mean, he was respected by Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives. I mean, he just had universal respect. Because of that, oftentimes he would be assigned to cases that were very high profile or had a lot, of, a lot of PR consequences. Some of you remember the horrific quadruple murder that happened close by at the soccer fields. Paul was assigned to that case. But he was having lunch with me one day, and he was telling me about a scenario in which all of Wichita was interested in a story, but it wasn't just Wichita. This story had national ramifications. And there was a very tough decision that had to be made, so it was assigned to Paul's courtroom. And when he made the decision, he was vilified by certain elements of the 
local media, not all, but certain elements. And then it was picked up by the national media, and he was, he was vilified by national media. And it was so unfair because the decision he had made was, in, it was the correct decision to make, and then beyond that, he was concerned about the safety of all the people that were involved. And, and so he had made the right decision, but he just took a horrific beating in the media. Sometime later, the owner of one of those media organs, the one that had vilified him the worst, was standing in Paul's courtroom, standing before Paul, and Paul said, it was my decision whether or not that guy went to prison or he got parole. Well, by this point, I pulled up my chair in the restaurant, and I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. <laughs> Many times I, I was in Paul's courtroom, and he had a, a library off the courtroom. He said, I went into that library, and I got on my knees, and I said, Lord, help me remember the law. Help me to remember to be fair. Help me to remember to be true to what you've taught me. And if I remember right, he put him on parole. Now, I only tell you that story for a reason. Someday, somebody who's hurt you is going to be in your courtroom. They've said th bad things about you, but you got the floor now. They held back things from you, but now it's in your power to hold back what they want. You have an opportunity. They're in your courtroom. You can sentence them. And all Jesus is saying is, look, when somebody who's hurt you is in your courtroom and you're handing down the sentence, Jesus is saying, look, you're in turbulent air. Keep your wings level. Be merciful because those who give mercy will receive mercy. Now, I want to make sure that we understand a hugely important point. Jesus is not saying if you give a person mercy, they're inclined to be merciful to you. It's really important to get that because here's the thing. Many times you'll be merciful to people. I mean, never will they deserve it. You know, one of the things I hear from people is, I just can't forgive. They don't deserve my forgiveness. Well, of course not. Duh. If they deserved it, it wouldn't be forgiveness. Nobody ever deserves mercy. But sometimes we'll give mercy to people who won't appreciate that we've given them mercy. But here's the point that God is making. God is saying, Mark, listen, just keep your wings level. We're worried about your attitude, not their attitude. And God is saying, Mark, just keep your wings level. You give them mercy, I will give you mercy. Look at what Jesus said. He said, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Don't judge. You won't be judged. Don't condemn. And you won't be condemned. Forgiven. You'll be forgiven. Given it will be given to you. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. God is saying, Mark, the way you treat Mary Alice, the standard you use, in talking to her, dealing with her, God is saying, this is the standard I'm going to use with you. And even the people who've hurt me the worst, God is saying, look, if you're merciful to them, I'll be merciful to you. I can use that. Can't you? I mean, the next time somebody gives you trouble, just thank them for giving you the opportunity. I mean, you know, the next time your husband just gives you a hard time, say, baby, thank you. What a gracious gift that you've given me this opportunity to be merciful to you so that I can receive mercy from God. You're awesome. <laughs> I know. You can try it. <laughs> okay, we're talking about keeping our wings level in dangerous skies. We've talked about when you're hurt. There's a second kind of turbulent air Jesus is going to get into. Isn't it true? In our culture today, that everybody wants you to be what they want you to be. I mean, we, li we live in an age where we, we can get used real easily. And so, you know, before long, if you, you stop thinking about it, it's like your boss wants you to be this person, your mother-in-law wants you to be this person, the kids want you to be this person, your friends want you to be this person. After a while, it's kind of hard to keep up with who you are anymore. 
There's so many people to so many people. You look in the mirror, you don't know who you are. So Jesus is now, he's going to talk to us about that. And he's going to say, happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, pure in heart, let's get a better English word for that. And I'm not sure this is a great one, but it's very accurate. The best English word for what Jesus is describing is singleness. Now, for all you married people, Jesus isn't saying happy or single people. He's just saying happy are the people who are about what they seem to be about. Happy are the people who are real. That's what pure in heart means. It means single. It means you're not duplicitous. You don't have multiple motives. I mean, maybe this will help. You ever talk to somebody and you think, I wonder what she really thinks? Or, or maybe you're talking to somebody, you know, and you think, I wonder who this person really is after all the layers are peeled apart. I wonder who he really is. Or do you have a friend who it just sort of, she changes with which crowd she's with. I mean, with one crowd, she's conservative. With one crowd, she's liberal. With one crowd, she's, you know, with one crowd, she's a vegan. The next time, she's eating a double cheeseburger. I mean, you just, you, you know, person just changes depending upon the crowd. There's a word Jesus is going to use in this message over and over and over. It's the word hypocrite. Now, I'm nervous about using that word because for us in our culture today, hypocrite's normally a pejorative. It's a slur. It's a slam. You call somebody a hypocrite. When Jesus used the word, it wasn't a slam. It wasn't a slur. Uh, the, uh, hypocrite comes from two Greek words, hupo. We got a word hypo under from that. And krites to judge. So what a, what a hypocrite was in Jesus' day was an actor. Greek and Roman actors would act behind large masks that would have mechanical devices inside to augment the sound. So consequently, the person wasn't what he appeared to be, or he was not the person he looked like, and he didn't sound like he talked, or the way his sound, the sound of his voice came out. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what a hypocrite was. When Jesus talks about hypocrites, he's talking about actors. I don't mean people that do that for a profession, just people who, not what they claim to be. You know, one of the things I've heard through the years is the church is full of hypocrites. And I sure hope that's not true about New Spring. But I think sometimes the word hypocrite gets misapplied. Because I think sometimes hypocrite is used to describe somebody who believes in a standard up here, but they don't measure up to that standard. And that's not a hypocrite. All of us believe in a standard higher than we can measure up to. That is not a hypocrite. I'm going to give you an example. If you ask me, is fear a sin? I would say, absolutely. But I've been honest with you. There are many seasons when I've been crippled by anxieties. Now, the fact that I believe that fear is a sin and I wrestle with anxieties, does that make me a hypocrite? No. I'm just believing in a standard I can't measure up to. But a hypocrite is somebody who claims to measure up to a standard that he doesn't live up to. It's a person who claims. It would be as if I said, hey, guys, I never wrestle with fear. That would be a hypocrite. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, happy are the people who are about what they say they're about. And inversely, if happy are the people who are about what they say they're about, unhappy are pretenders. You know, here's the thing. I don't think we pretend to be what we're not because we're trying to deceive. I don't think that's the case. You know why I think we do it? I think we do it because we're in choppy air and we want to get past the moment. Or we're with somebody that we love and we want them to be okay with us. And so consequently, 
we'll cut a corner. We'll say, well, what's the harm? I'll just go ahead and seem to be about what she wants me to be about in order to get past this moment. Guys, I wish I knew how to preach because if I did, I could make a great point here. Jesus is saying, look, I'm giving you attitudes to help you get along with people. That's what I've given you not being full of yourself for and being meek and kind and being a peacemaker that we're going to talk about in just a moment. Jesus is saying, utilize those attitudes to get along with people, but he's reminding us, never sell your soul in order to get along with people. Do you know why people who pretend are unhappy? Well, well, I know maybe you have better reasons than I do, but here's the thing. If you and I are pretending to be something we're not, we're messed up either way. If we don't pull it off, we'll get embarrassed. And honestly, I think that's the lesser of the problems. If you pull it off, you'll be trapped. If you're pretending to be something that you're not and you pull it off, next thing you know, everybody will hold you accountable to be what you pretend to be. And you'll be living a life, you talk about living a life of taxing. Jesus is calling us to be about what we say we're about. And he said, happy are the people who are what they seem to be. Happy are the people that are the same way all the time. Because after all, we're going to fly in some turbulent air where people want us to be what they want us to be. And Jesus is saying, keep your wings level and you be who you really are. Third thing. I kind of hinted at this one a moment ago. Well, in the first one, Jesus said, keep your wings level because sometimes you're going to fly in air where you're going to be hurt. And then he said, you're going to fly in some air where people are wanting you to be what they want you to be. Now, Jesus is going to talk about a third kind of choppy air. He's saying, you're going to fly in conflict. Look at this. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Man, conflict is big stuff today, right? I mean, here's the thing, especially with social media and, and, and with cable news and all this and talk radio, it's like, The more conflict you can throw out there, the more hits you get, the more likes you get, the more attention you draw. In fact, we're in a political season. Politicians will utilize and leverage conflict in order to get votes. I don't know. I'm not saying we should always, you know, blow sunshine at each other. I know there are things that are serious that we need to talk about where there are opposing views. But Jesus is just saying, look, if you're a God follower, happy are the people who are peacemakers. I wish we could do a whole talk on this. Maybe we will someday. But I think if you and I were honest with ourselves, we know the difference between stirring up conflict, leveraging conflict, and mitigating it, lessening it. You know, well, especially if that conflict is between you and somebody else. It's so easy, you know, to get an attitude of, of, of I'm, I'm going to be a combatant here. You know, we, we hear a lot, especially in business jargon, about defining the win. When Jesus is coaching us up and saying, look, if you're flying in turbulent conflict air, a win isn't beating the other person. A win is making peace. He's not calling us to change our standard. We know that. He's just calling us to make peace. You know, I know, I'm going to be straight with you. If you're a peacemaker, you're probably not going to get a lot of attention. I mean, people that create conflict, they get a lot more news. But the Bible gives you a real special promise here. It says, happy are people who make peace because they'll be called the children of God. You guys are a young church. A lot of y'all way too young. You wouldn't even know what I'm talking about. Um, the other day, I got a little 
breaking news on my iPhone that Natalie Cole had died. I love Natalie Cole. Um, she was the daughter of the most iconic male singer in the 20th century, Nat King Cole. Man, what a beautiful voice Nat King Cole. We just finished Christmas. A lot of Christmas music, Nat King Cole. And, and even to this day, even though he, he died as a young man with cancer in the 60s, but even to this day, a lot of his music is still, I mean, I'll turn on a commercial on television, it'll be Nat King Cole singing. Or there's a movie, I go, a movie, Nat King Cole is singing. And of course, the most iconic song, uh, iconic song he sang was Unforgettable. Well, anyway, Natalie started her career in R&B, and I loved her R&B stuff, but as she went into the 80s, she began to cover some of her dad's tunes. And she came out with a project, like I said, in which she covered her dad's best-known tune, Unforgettable. But what I remember most, and what I thought about when I heard that she had died last week, was the MTV video that was made when Natalie sang Unforgettable. Because through technology, they imported images of her dad, the black and white images, and Natalie singing. And for a while, they were singing a duet, even though they were separated by the years. And I still remember the first time I was watching MTV, and I got to look at that video, and I thought, oh, my goodness, she looks so much like her dad. And she sounds so much like her dad. Do you realize that when we make peace, instead of fomenting conflict, instead of leveraging conflict, instead of exploiting conflict, when we make peace, people have a right to say she looks like her dad. She looks like her father, which is in heaven. He looks like his dad. For a brief moment, we get to do a duet with our Father, which is in heaven. That is the power of being a peacemaker. One more, and then we'll be through. Wow, Jesus ends in a quirky place. But hey, it's his talk, and I just talk for him. God blesses those, or happier those, who are persecuted for doing right. Now, when I was a kid, my mama told me if I wanted things to go well, I need to do well. And she said, you know what, if you, do, if you do bad things, you don't get punished. You do good things, you'll be rewarded. Well, Jesus is telling us, life doesn't always work that way. He said, happy are the people who are persecuted for doing right. And then he goes on to expand on that. He says, happy are you when people mock you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Now Jesus is tightening up the definition. He's talking about Jesus' followers. And he's saying, look, not everybody's going to love you if you follow Jesus. He said, you could be mocked. Welcome to late night television. You could be lied about. And, and here's the thing. He said, you can actually believe the right things and be accused of being a bad person. You could actually do good things and accused of be doing bad things. Jesus is saying this could happen. You're going to fly in some of that air if you're a Jesus follower. Well, let's be blunt. It's okay to hate Jesus in, in our world today. There's no Jesus phobia. You notice that? I mean, they make up all these terms. There's a, there's a phobe for everything, but there's no Christianophobe. It's because it's okay to hate Jesus. In fact, in 40 countries of the world, people are being persecuted for, for following Jesus. In fact, just this last week, the reports of Christians in certain nations being put in casket-like boxes and set afire alive just because they follow Jesus. Now, listen to me, please. That's not happening without an, a comprehensive reason. Three times Jesus will call Satan the prince of this world. Now, that's not saying he's got influence. Jesus will call him the ruler, arche, of this world. 
Now, the reason for that is our first parents, Adam and Eve, surrendered over kingdom authority to Satan. So, I mean, one of the things that Satan must really get a big kick out of is in our world that's so broken when bad things happen, people ask, where is God? Well, Jesus said straight up, Satan is the prince of this world. Hey, do you remember when Jesus was being tempted? Satan said to him, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. He had to be offering Jesus something that Satan knew that he could deliver. So we live in a world that is flawed and broken, a world system in which Satan is, is powerful. And you know, the thing about it is, <laughs> Satan must get a, he must laugh all the way to the bank about this one. People think that Satan worship is goat heads and blood, you know, human sacrifice and vampires and all that stuff. That's not Satanism. Satan worship is what it always has been from the moment he rebelled against God and sold this bill of goods to our first parents. Here is Satan worship. It is worship yourself, you don't need God. That is Satan worship. That is what it means to worship Satan. I don't need God. It always has been, it is. And Jesus is saying, look, if you come along and you love Jesus and you worship him, you're going to be in a world system that's not going to always love you. So Jesus is saying, look, okay, when you get out there and you follow Jesus, and because you do, people lie about you and they mock you and they accuse you of being on the wrong side. Jesus said, have some marches, uh, start some organizations, launch some protest movement. No, no, no. <laughs> he said, when that happens, rejoice. Rejoice? I'll tell you what helps me understand that. We're still in football season, although my team is long gone. I follow a semi-pro football team known as the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> but I cannot help myself. I've been watching them for like 50 years. So I, you know, I just still watch them. I'd, I'd love to find a 12-step program and get me free from that. <laughs> well, anyway, the thing about it is, I back in the day that when the Cowboys were good, I, I, they sometimes would get behind by two or three touchdowns. But I've, 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 I've pre-recorded the game. So I'm watching... I'm watching. I know how it ends. I know they come back and they win. But in what appears to be real time, you see the other team taunting and trash-talking them in like the third quarter. And I'm sitting back there with my arms crossed, not worried about a thing, saying, knock yourself out. I know how this game ends. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, when people mock you because you're a cross follower, Jesus said, don't get angry. Don't, don't, don't hit back. I mean, they're the people you need to love and reach out to. Jesus is saying, hey, don't go on a crusade. Just rejoice. We win. He wins. Simple as that. I, I am three minutes and 40, 50 seconds into overtime. Could I have two more minutes maybe? Okay, here's the thing. Somebody could say, well, Mark, I don't get it. If Satan is the ruler of this world, how can a person become a Christ follower? Let me read a verse that explains it all. Colossians 1.13. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, I hate to admit what I'm about to admit to you in this story. If there are kids in the room, you might want to cover their ears so they don't hear what their pastor has done. Well, when I was in the sixth grade getting ready to go into middle school, sixth grade was the last year of elementary school, we, we always took achievement tests. I took the Iowa test of basic skills. But it turned out at the end of the year, they gave us another achievement test. I hate those things. And they just give you the paper with all the little circles, and you've got to take a pencil, and you've got to mark you know, the little book and everything. And I love to read, so I've always had a book going. And, and this teacher said, my, my, my sixth-grade teacher said, she said, okay, here are going to be the tests. She said, if you get through early with the test, you can read a book or something. Well, I had a book I really wanted to read. <laughs> circles, pencil, 
Man, just randomly, I just filled in all those circles and I read my book. What I didn't know was based on this test, my classes in middle school were going to be determined. Do I go to a remedial class, a regular class, an honors class, an accelerated class? Man, I get over to Forest Oak Middle School in Fort Worth, and I'm in all these classes, and you know, a week or two into it, I'm part of discussions. I take some quizzes and tests, and <laughs> class by class, the assistant, they never accused me of anything. I think they suspicioned it. I would see the assistant principal come in with my attendance card and say, I need Mark Hoover. And they would transfer me out of that class. And a couple of times, I was actually transferred all the way from remedial classes to accelerated classes. Here's the thing. When you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Jesus comes in with your attendance card and said, I'm transferring her. She belongs to me now. I'm transferring her out of this kingdom. I'm transferring her into my kingdom. I'm transferring him into my kingdom. And just in case anybody wants to be transferred here, it's free. It won't cost you anything. All you have to do is ask. Jesus has paid for it on the cross. In fact, as we close out this service, I'm now six minutes and 13 seconds into overtime. Would you pray with me, please? And if you want to join me in this prayer, I'll, I'll pray it slowly so that you can own it and say it to God. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose in the grave. Would you transfer me into your kingdom? Thank you, in Jesus' name. You say, Mark, I don't have any idea what in the world just happened to me, but I prayed with you. Well, I, I've got an aid prepared for you. It's a packet with a DVD, a book I wrote, and a new Bible. All you got to do is go back to guest services. A big one in the lobby, a little one back by the coffee shop, and just say, I pray with Mark, and they will give this to you. Thanks for being here today. God bless. We'll see you next weekend.